So uh, the other day, I, I went to the mall. Uh, the mall is not somewhere that I go very often. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the mall. In fact, usually when, um, you know, when Boomy, Boom, Boomy jokes a lot of times, but like whenever I go into the mall, for whatever reason, I get super tired immediately. Like right when we step into it and we start, you know, shopping is not one of my favorite things. And so whenever I do something like that, I get really tired and drained and I, I get very focused. I want to go immediately to get the thing that I need. Like I need to get a shirt or something. I go, I go immediately to the store. I look, I, I get very, um, like, like one track mind, you know, I, I get the shirt and then I try to pay for it as fast as I can and leave. Um, that's generally how I am at the mall. But I actually needed um, a picture at the mall because I was, I was doing something. I was kind of doing a, a project on my own. And so I wanted to go to the Apple store to take a picture. And so um, going for this reason, going to the mall not to purchase something was very weird. It was a very interesting experience. I don't know if you've ever done this. And I didn't have to eat there or anything. I really had no reason, nothing that the mall had to offer me um, to be there. And actually, it was very interesting because I was taking pictures of different things. And it made me notice a lot of things that I had never noticed before. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but if you go to the mall, it's very visually stimulating. You know, like if you're a little kid and you've never seen a lot of things, you might notice uh, a lot of different things because all the stores are right next to each other. It's compacted. There are these, like, there's designs and logos all over the place. There are advertisements all over the place. You know, everything is glass, right? It's, it's windows, and so you can see into the stores. There's a ton of stuff happening, and I never noticed this before because I would always just think about the thing that I have to buy when I go there. And then I also noticed people, like what people were doing and the way that they looked. Uh, I was... You know, again, I, I had to go to the I wanted to go to the Apple store to, to take a picture of something. And it was very interesting being in there and not being there for any consumer reason. You know, so I observed a lot of people and what they were thinking about and what they were talking about and what their concerns were. And it was strange to be in a place that is designed to sell you things but to not have anything to buy. It was weird. It was probably one of the few times in my life that I went to the mall, neither, and I, I didn't buy anything, and I didn't even shop for anything. And I thought, like, this is kind of <laughs> strangely similar. You know, I was watching people just kind of walking around, and I thought it's strangely similar to basically the call of Christians in the world because the concern of most people, particularly in our culture, is what's the next thing I'm going to buy? This is kind of how we live, right? This is really what our, our lives are almost, in, in our culture, I wouldn't say us individually per se, but in our culture, this is almost what we are about. Maybe not, and even if not to buy, it is what is our next thing to consume, right? And usually money is involved in that. But what is the next thing I'm going to eat? What is the next thing I'm going to drink? What is the next thing I'm going to watch? Or what is the, you know, the plane ticket I'm going to buy? Or, you know, where's the, the, the home I'm going to go live at? Or what is the next car I'm going to have? Or what is the next, you know, piece of furniture? What's the next thing? What's the next piece of clothing? What are my next shoes? What are my next, what's my next gadget? This tends to be almost the way that our lives are designed, like around these milestones. And it's really weird, but in this kind of world, the call of Christians is to be people that that's not their world. That's not our concern. Those aren't our milestones. Those aren't the metrics that we live by, that we have the certain things that we want, or we're spending the money that we want on the things that we want. So I think, okay, so we're, if we're Christians and we live in this culture, we're not supposed to be like that, but for many of us, I think we do fall into that. We identify mostly as consumers. Why? You know, well, why is that then? And I think for many of us, it's because 
We have nothing more important to do. Like, we just have space and time to fill up. And so we find something to fill it up, something new to watch or to read or to play, somewhere to go, you know, a new, new trail, a new class, something that we can be a part of to fill up the empty time that we have. Now, I don't think that's what we're called to be, and that's not what we're called to do. If that's not what we're supposed to be, what are we supposed to be and to do? So we're in a series called uh, Gospel-Centered Church. Really, this is kind of indicative of, of my heart for the church, in particular what God has been convicting me of in many recent months, perhaps years. And what we've been talking about, right? And I would encourage you, if you're a member at this church and you've missed some Sundays in the, this year, Go back and listen to the sermons. And I rarely say that, but, but do it. Because you got to know what's going on in this series to really have a heartbeat for what our, what our church is about and what we want to be about moving forward. And so I do want to recap a little bit. Like we've talked about the past few weeks, you know, the first week we talked about living before the throne, right? If you guys remember that picture from Revelation 4 and 5, the throne that's at the center of all reality, and God is the one who's sitting on it. We want to get that throne in view and live before it all the time. That, that's kind of the overarching for Christians. That's what we're meant to be about. Last week we talked about, uh, I'm sorry, two weeks ago we talked about being a creature of the word, that the proclamation of the gospel is not merely one thing that the church does among others, that it is the basis of the church's life, right? The church doesn't create the gospel. The gospel creates the church. And last week we talked about how, um, you know, a gospel-centered church needs to be always on mission, right? That that needs to be the purpose of our lives. God had a mission for Adam and Eve, right, to be fruitful, to multiply, to spread God's glory over the earth. He had a mission for Abram. He had a mission for, you know, all, and then all the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, you know, all the way down and through to Moses and the nation of Israel, always to spread God's glory. And it comes all the way down to us, the church today, that we should live our lives always on mission. Today is kind of a continuation of what we talked about last week. But it is the logical conclusion of what we've talked about last week that a gospel-centered church, and I'll just give you the point again right now, um, a gospel-centered church is one that's committed to the task of taking the gospel to the nations. Uh, A gospel-centered church is one that's committed to the task of taking the gospel to the nations. So we'll be unpackaging, you know, what that means, how we can step into that and, and you know, what it will require for us. And so if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to Matthew 28. And we'll start here. Again, we'll, um, we'll be looking at some different passages today. But this is uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. This is the Great Commission. Something that I don't really know if we can talk about this enough. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. This is God's word, and it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. To put it simply, we have been commanded to make disciples of all nations. This is Jesus' command. This is, now, if we go back to the beginning, right? And we talked about some of this last week, but Adam and Eve had a mission. God says, you know, at the end of Genesis 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply and increase and fill the earth. You know, subdue the earth, have dominion over the earth. What was their job? It was to go out and to spread God's glory because we as humans are image bearers of God. They were supposed to go and spread God's glory and his image all over the earth. But what did they do? They didn't go, right? They just stayed in the Garden of Eden. In fact, they stayed in the center of the Garden of Eden because they didn't want to go out. They wanted to be comfortable. That's something that we see all throughout the Bible the Tower of Babel. People wanted to be together, stick together. They didn't want to go out. They didn't want to spread over the earth. So God had to come down and confuse their language. Right? After Noah, after the flood, right? Noah didn't want to go out. He got drunk in his tent. 
You know, people didn't want to go out. Israel never wanted to go out. Right? And so God actually made it so that it would become a come and see type thing. He made them into a nation so other nations could see them. But God's people, they continuously, throughout the Old Testament, they keep rejecting his mission. Right? They're meant to spread God's glory over the earth, but they don't do it. And God begins promising, and he keeps promising, like, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. And so, because God is a God of mission, he keeps sending us on missions, but we don't do it. He sends his own son on a mission. So his own son comes down. And he brings the mission. He says, I will bring the gospel. In fact, he is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. He embodies it. And he he lives the life. He becomes a man, dies for all of our sins. So no matter what, right, no matter what we've done, no matter where we're at, doesn't matter. Jesus covers over that sin with his blood. Then he rises again from the dead. He's raised by the power of God. And after that, is when this happens, is when this is given, this commission. He says, now that the the culmination of history, like the pinnacle, the climax right here, in terms of what was supposed to happen, all the things that were promised before, now that that's happened, not the complete fulfillment, but the the beginning of it, now that that's happened, everything forward is going to look back to this moment. And Jesus says, okay, Now go. Go make disciples of all nations. That's what the church has to be about. That's what for 2,000 years the church has been about. It's been built on this commission. This is what Jesus said. And then the disciples who were present, they went. They went out. They started making disciples. And then those disciples went out and made disciples. And those disciples went out and made disciples. Now, real quick, uh, before we move on, sometimes we have this thought, like, why the nations, though? Like, why do we have to go to the ends of the earth? And this is, in fact, very common in the, in the church, particularly in the American church. People have this resistance to the idea of taking the gospel to the nations. And usually what they say is, uh, well, we have our own problems and we have things going on here. Why don't we deal with those things first, and then maybe we can go out? Or why don't we worry about ourselves? Now, I'll give you three reasons why that doesn't work. Like, that understanding doesn't work. The first reason is, this has always been God's plan, and this is God's plan for the church to go out to the nations. Right? So it's also in Acts 1.8, right? He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? He says, it's going to spread out from here to the ends of the earth. And that has to be something that's on our minds. Right? In fact, this is Matthew 24.14. It says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is actually about the end times. Jesus is telling them about the end times, and they say, when will we know that this is happening? And he says, here it is. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world, to all the nations. And this word nations, the same word uh, that's used in other places, it's not nations like political nations. That's our understanding. It's people groups. The words ethne. It's to, to, to all the different peoples of the world. Right? This is Matthew 16, 18. It says, And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the reason I included this is because oftentimes the motivation behind the resistance of going to the nations is that we don't want to storm the gates of hell. We want to build up our own gates to keep our people inside, right? We, in fact, we don't want to go out into the world where there's like dirty sinners, you know, where people are weird and they're not like as, for lack of a better term, they're not as cool as us, okay? They're not nice. They're not social. They're not, they're not brought up the same way. They don't know all the right things to say. They're not interesting. Like we don't want to be friends with them. 
So what we do is we, we, we shut the doors of the church, and in fact, we say, well, we, there's, we want a certain type of person. We want, like, these cool people so we can be friends with them, so we can hang out with them, so they're interesting, right? Like, ironically, what this does, though, is it makes us not even like each other that much because we put all these standards on each other. Like, are you cool enough to hang out with me? Or I don't like you because, you know, you didn't do such and such for me. It creates all these problems. I talked about this last week, but it, it, it eliminates grace. There is this deservedness factor that we input into our notion of community. People have to be deserving of our time, of our effort, right? Either because they have to be cool enough or because, like, we do this kind of preemptive thing, right? Like, oh, they probably think I'm not cool enough, so I'm just going to reject them first. Not God's plan, though. Right? God's plan was never for the church to do that. He says, what you're going to do, the church, church is a, is a, is a training ground. Right? It's a mobilization center so you can be equipped, so you can learn, so you can grow, so you can get some encouragement, so you can get pumped up, and so you can go out into the world and storm the gates of hell and pull people's souls out of there. So we got to go to the nation's. Reason number two, okay? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't need that. That'll be way later. <laughs> Reason number two. There's greater need out there than here. There's greater need out there than here. And we, we prayed for China uh, yesterday, right? And just to let you guys know, what's happening in China is that the church is being severely persecuted by the government. Uh, now... There is a huge crackdown going on. It started a few months ago, and they are shutting down churches left and right there. And, in fact, they're, they're demolishing churches, like literally. Okay, so they're coming in and just knocking them down. Like it would be as if a, the government came in here and said, your church, like we don't like this. Get out of here. And then they just knock this building down. That's, that's literally what's happening. You know, people are being imprisoned, and they're being threatened. Some churches, like the government's going in and they're installing cameras, CCTV cameras, so they can see what's going on. And in fact, a few months ago, like a, basically a political deal was struck between the Vatican and, and the Chinese government. And so they're trying to install bishops. It's basically like, you know, 500 years ago. It's like they're, they're, there's this political alliance going on through the, the Catholic Church. And the underground Catholic Church in China, they feel like it's a betrayal so the, all the underground churches in China now, like the unofficial churches, because you can have a government church, but that's basically a church with no teeth. It's a gospel that's not really gospel. So all the real churches are being threatened. Yeah, that's not happening here. Right? You can go to any church. There's churches all over the place. You can go to any church. You can worship. In fact, you can even... Sadly, we have a term called church shopping, meaning you, you, you could shop for a church. Not only is your church not under any threat, you can go pick a church, whichever one you like, whichever one suits you, whichever one has the programs that are interesting to you, whichever one has the preaching that appeals to you or the worship that you like, you can just go shop for it. There's far greater need out there then there is here. Yeah, we have needs. And I don't want to make it seem like we don't have needs. Certainly we have felt needs. But let me just say this real quick, okay? Sometimes when you, when you are in service to someone who is in greater need, your needs do not be, they, they shrink. Right? Like I thought I had a lot of needs and then I had a kid. And then I was like, oh, he has more needs. He can't feed himself. Right? So if I'm hungry and the baby is also hungry, I can't be like, well, dude, I'm hungry. Right? Because I can feed myself, the baby can't feed himself. So I have to get the food ready for the baby. And things that I would complain about at other times, like being hungry, becomes less of a complaint because I'm like, well, yes, I'm hungry, but he also has greater need than me. Right? So I, I start to not feel like that's such a big deal. You know, like I used to really value sleep, but I, I'm starting to think like, oh, it's not a huge deal if I lose some sleep. It's not a huge deal if I have to like 
you know, drive somewhere really far or like they're, you know, do certain things. They're just not, it's not as big of a deal as I thought it was. Yeah, that happens some. Reason three. Because that was reason two. There's greater need out there than here. Reason one was it's God's plan, right? Reason three that we must go to the nations is that some places don't have the gospel. So we, all, we have the gospel. They don't have the gospel. Right? Like unreached people groups. There are, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to drown you in statistics, but I'll just say there are about three over, well, I'll just say there's over three billion people in the world that are what we categorize as an unreached people group, meaning they either don't have the gospel at all or there is a church there, but they're so small that there's nothing they can really do to reach the people. Like, it's very difficult. 86% of non-Christians in the world are not relationally connected to even one Christian. So 86% of non-Christians in the world don't even know one Christian person. Right? Now, that's not the case here, obviously. Right? They're, probably every non-Christian in this country knows at least one Christian. Now, here's, here's what's happening in the church. There's, and I've, I've shared this before. It's still the case. There's 900 churches for every one unreached people group in the world. So if we split up all the people groups, the unreached people groups of the world, we could assign 900 churches to each one of them to reach that group. Right? So we could just, just get a map, find them all, and then say, okay, you, 900 churches. Not 900 people, 900 churches. It is your task to reach this one people group. Right? Find, a, you know, find out the language, translate the Bible, you know, find a way to reach them. There are 78,000 evangelical Christians for every one unreached people group. So if we did it by people and not churches, 900 churches, 78,000 people, eight, almost 80,000 people basically. We could say, you 80,000 people, it's your job to pray, raise money, send missionaries, translate the Bible, go to this one unreached people group. And take the gospel there. And I've asked this before, but I'll ask it again. How is it, how is it that this is the case? We have, the church has roughly 3,000 times the financial resources, and 9,000 times the manpower, the human resources, to finish the Great Commission. We have 3,000 times the resources. Can you believe that? I, when I first saw this, I was, sh- I was shocked, and I thought, it cannot be true. Like, this cannot be right. But I checked it, and I went back and rechecked it, and it is right. We have 3,000 times as much money as we need to just reach the, all the nations right now and 9,000 times as many people as we need. Now, look, it's not that simple. Okay, there are other factors at play. There's political factors. There are you know, other geopolitical things happening. And so I'm not going to just make it seem like, oh, we could just, if we just figured it out, you know, we could just do it. But at the same time, uh, this is a question David Platt asks. He says, when will the concept of unreached peoples become intolerable to the church? Like, at what point will Christians think, no, we can't, just, we can't just live our lives and think it's fine that there's people out there who just don't have access to the gospel. So I deal with a lot of Ziploc bags in my life. Okay, a ton of Ziploc bags because it's just my way of doing things, and it's probably wrong, but, like, whenever I use something... And, you know, I'm not done with it. Like, I just put it in a Ziploc bag, and then I stick it in the fridge. Okay, like, whatever it is. I'm, like, cutting up an onion. You know, I use half of it, and I just stick it in a Ziploc bag, and I put, like, a tomato, fruit, you know, whatever, food, something I ate, like a half-eaten sandwich. I stick it in a Ziploc bag. I put it in the fridge, and that's just what I do, right? And all Micah's lunch, you know, and whatever. Like, you know, when we go on a trip or something, uh, we use a ton of Ziploc bags. Like, we put clothes in Ziploc bags, you know, before we pack them, and we, you know, varying sizes, right? And like, sandwich bags have snacks and, like, all this kind of stuff. But I get really annoyed because when you try to put a bunch of Ziploc bags into a bag, it's hard. Like, it's because 
because air gets inside. That's why, right? And I actually watched a video about how to properly get air out of a Ziploc bag. Do you guys know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to put a straw in there, and then you, so you put a straw, and then you close the bag around the straw, and then you suck out the air, and then you just close that little last part. And that's the way to actually properly remove air from a Ziploc bag. And I saw this video, and I was like, that's stupid, right? Like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to get a straw and go to every single Ziploc bag and suck out the air and just, you know, do that. Some of you guys probably think I lost my train of thought and I just randomly started talking about Ziploc bags. But the reason I bring this up, okay, is because our days are kind of like Ziploc bags. And this is what I mean, okay? No matter what you, no matter what's in there, it will become full. The thing is, though, you could have nothing in there. And yet your day will still become full. You will find something to fill it with. So no matter what you do, like there can be content in there. There can be something really important in there or there can be absolutely nothing of any value in there and still it will become full. Why are we not going to the nations? Because all our days are full. Because all our money is full. Because all our time is full. Because everything has been spent. But let me just ask you, what's, what's in your bag? What is it full of? Is it something worthy? How do we get out of this is, this is what a life of consumer comfort gives us. A life that's full, but also empty. It's filled, but what is it filled with? Now, yeah, you could, I guess, go and suck out every bag with a straw. <laughs> you know, and then you'd have at least a flat, empty bag. Or you could just fill the bag with something really important. God didn't want you to spend your days imagining how they could be better. He never wanted that. He didn't want you to only always think about how things could be better in your life if this were happening, if that were happening. If people treated me a certain way, if my job was different. He didn't want you to stare in the mirror and wonder why you feel empty. He didn't leave you without a purpose. Jesus didn't say, I saved you. Enjoy it. And then ascend into heaven. He said, I saved you. Now go and make disciples of all nations. He didn't leave us here to do nothing. He said, I have a huge task for my people. And you know what's going to happen when it's over? Do you know what's going to happen when it's over? The end. When the gospel goes out to all the nations, then it'll be the end. Then we'll reach the, the end of Revelation, right, where it says there are no more tears. There's no more fear. There's no more pain. There's no more shame. God is going to bring the great rest, the great joy, the great peace that we're meant to have for all of eternity, not these, these, these you know, bits and pieces of it that we taste here because we had a, a good little piece of something, a little, little piece of cake, a little taste of coffee. You know, the, I have this little tiny thing here, and that's my enjoyment. That's my fulfillment. No, God says, here's the mission. Go do the mission until you die. And when you die, then you'll have way better stuff than anything that exists on the earth. Way better joy, way better peace. Far greater glory. He left us with a mission. So take the gospel to the nations. How do we do it? Now, it's, if you've been here, I've been through this passage tons of times, but the main, so the main verb is this. Make disciples. And there's three participles. It's go, 
baptize and teach. Right? Going, baptizing, and teaching. So let me, let me just say those three things, okay? How can you do it? Be invested in the baptizing of the church, in the baptisms of the church. What does that mean? A, a baptism is something that happens when a person crosses over from death to life, right? It's a sign of someone who's become a Christian. So be on the lookout for people who need Jesus in your life, where you're at. Right? I shared this this morning too, but, but, but pray. Right? If there's someone in your life who doesn't know, who doesn't know Jesus, never heard the gospel, just start praying for them. That's the first thing. Just start praying for them. Because God will give you the heart. Right? God will give you the compassion. Start praying for them because you have an interest in them. Not because you want to grow the church. Not because you want another number or another, you know, another butt in the seat. Like, we don't care about that, right? Care about that person. Love them. Spend time with them. Right? Get to know them. That, that's what it is to be a Christian. That's the call of every Christian. Not to, you know, put something on a chart so we can have a metric so we can say, oh, look, we did something. No, I mean... I mean, God's not going to care about that. You know, when you go to, if I go to heaven with a piece of paper and say, God, look, look what we did. Look at our numbers. And he's not going to care. Be invested in the baptizing of the church. Second thing, be invested in the teaching of the church. Here's my challenge, okay, especially if you're a member here. Every time you receive teaching, know it well enough to teach it. Okay, every time you listen to a sermon, Know it well enough so you can give the points to someone else. If someone says, hey, I missed, I missed church last Sunday. What was the message about? It's like, bam, bam, bam. Here's what it was about. You know, what are you reading in Scripture? Like, what are you reading right now? It's like, I'm reading this. Boom, boom. Right, here's what I'm reading. Here's what I learned. I went to the workshop. Here's what I learned. Right? Because having that ready, that's, that is the equipment that you need to be a disciple maker. Because right? people, like, and oftentimes people will ask me, like, oh, but what's the, like, how do you become a discipler or, like, a disciple maker? <laughs> it's right here. See this? Here's the guide. It's all in here. Okay? Y'all got one? If you don't, download it. Right? It's free. Read it. Right? And then whatever you read... Share it. That's how you make disciples. That's it. I mean, that, that's, that's literally it. That's, that's all there is. Okay? I mean, sure, I could take you through some books, and I can give you a book and say, read this book, and here's some principles here and principles there. And look, books are great, okay? Don't get me wrong. I read tons of books. But this book, this is the main book. By the way, Christian books... Do you know what they all get their information from? They get it from here, right? This is the source. This is the source material for the guy who wrote the book that you thought was so interesting, right? It's this one. This one right here. This is the primary resource, okay? Read this book. I'm going to say it every week, okay? Read this book. Devour this. Be invested in the teaching of the, you know, that's, I mean, I'm preaching every Sunday. We have... Bible studies and these things. Like, why do you think we do those things? So you'll be equipped. Right? It's obviously for you to grow in the Word, for you to love God and grow in your own relationship with God. But, like, that can't be the end. Like, that can't be the end of it. Because then you'll only ever become, like, it's basically, like, thinking that that's the end is, like, thinking that what God wanted for you is to be super selfish. Like, to be the most blessed person. It's not what God wants for you. It's not what you want for yourself, right? You don't want to be super selfish. You want to be super giving, super servant-hearted, right? Like super sacrificial. The only way that happens is when you receive from God and then you're equipped to give to others. So finally, be invested. So be invested in the baptizing. You know, look for those people who need Jesus. Be invested in the teaching and be invested in the going, right? Be invested in the going. Preach the gospel. Always be sending people. Always be giving to the nations. Pray for the nations. Love those who go to the nations. And always ask God if he wants you to go to the nations. 
always be preaching the gospel, always be sending people, give to the nations, pray for the nations, love those who go to the nations, and ask God. Don't assume that God doesn't want you to go to the nations. Don't assume that. Never assume that. Even if you ask God and he says, no, not right now, then ask him again later. Ask him again in a month. Ask him again in a year. Ask him again in two years, in three years, in five years, in 10 years. Ask him when you're 20. Ask him when you're 30. Ask him when you're 40. Ask him when you're 50. Ask him when you're 60. Ask him when you're 70. Keep asking him until you die. What will it cost? Now, I'll say simply, okay? It'll cost a lot. You know, essentially, the cost of following Jesus, which is really what this is, is everything. Right? That's, that's the way that the Bible presents it. Right? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's essentially give up everything. Give up your self-identity and your self-worth that comes from what you think you create and change it and find it in me that you're made in my image, that I love you and I value you and I've sacrificed all of this for you. And take up your cross, which means be willing to die. And follow me wherever I send you. Say, yes, I will. Right? Yes, Lord, I'll go. So that's everything, right? Now, the thing is, the promise that comes with that is I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? He sends this commission, and he says, go do this commission, and as you do this commission, I'll be with you to the end of the age. See, Jesus, he was, and he was with them. He was with the early church. He showed up. And he was with them, and he was with Paul, right? And Paul lived this life that was constrained by the Spirit. But the reason that Paul was so confident about his life and his plans and his death was not only because he intellectually assented to the gospel, right? Do you think Paul, when Paul in in Philippians 1, when he's talking about, like, to live is Christ and to die is gain, and he's like, I know it's better, like, I want to leave and be with the Lord, but I know that God wants me to stay here for your sake, Do you think what Paul says is, well, I know that I'll be with the Lord because, and then he lays out the theological tenets of the gospel, because Jesus died for my sins and because he rose again from the dead and because I trust in him and therefore I know that I'll be with Jesus. No. He's able to be confident in that because his whole life is about the mission that Jesus gave. Like the only reason he's confident enough to say something like, I would rather die right now and be with Jesus but I know that he wants me to stay here is because his whole life is sold out for the gospel. His faith is not in God's unwavering commitment to him. It's in God's unwavering commitment to his promises. See, there is something we get twisted sometimes, and it's that we think God is unwaveringly committed to every single person. But he's not. He is unwaveringly committed to himself, to his glory. Meaning anyone who trusts in him, anyone who proclaims faith in him and who walks with him, certainly he'll be, like those people will be on the side of God. And so, of course, they can have confidence because he's with them. But, and, and look, I'm not, I don't want it to seem like I'm not talking about works righteousness. I'm not saying that there's a level that you must achieve to be on the side of God. But the Bible talks plenty about faith, about obedience, and it gives plenty of warnings to people. It says, don't assume. Don't assume that you're part of the kingdom just because you know the theology of the gospel. So Paul was confident because he walked in the gospel. Not because he lived a perfect life. He wouldn't say that. But because he was obedient. He did live an obedient life. He did live a faithful life. Doesn't mean he didn't sin. Doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes. But he also walked with God. 
Now, last week I said, to live missionally, you have to give up your plans, right? To want to be part of God's mission to go to the nations, you have to give up your dreams. When I was, uh, when I was in college, the first time I went on missions was, uh, you know, 2001, I think. Uh, I went to Russia. And then the following year, I went to, where'd I go? <laughs> I went to Mali. I went to a country in Africa. And from then to, for the next 10 years, basically, I went to missions at least once a year, right? Many years, I went twice. Some years, I went three times. Um, so I went to, like, Mexico several times. I went to Honduras, Guatemala, Brazil, Mali, Russia, India. You know, I went to, on a total of 13 overseas uh, missions trips in those in those basically nine years, and that doesn't include within the states because I went on several of those trips too. And the 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 ca- like the reason that I went on these trips, the main reason was because in '03 I went to Urbana and I listened to this this girl talk, and she gave this testimony, and um, like at this time I would be I would be reading all these these missionary books. Like I so I wanted to be a missionary. I actually went to seminary to become a missionary, but God essentially had other plans for me, at least for the time being. And, you know, I, I would read, like, Jim Elliott. I would read, you know, Through Gates of Splendor. And, you know, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Like, and I would read stuff like that, and I'd be like, dang, that's so good, right? Like, how did a guy just think of that, right? Like, I mean, he's essentially, yeah, it came from the Bible. It's basically, you know, Mark 8. But I'm like, man, that's, that's, that's amazing, and so I went to this mission conference in Urbana, and this girl, she gave this testimony. And the reason that this testimony resonated with me so much was because it was, like, an American testimony. Like, it wasn't somebody, you know, who, who grew up in, like, a, a backwards, you know, country or, like, who grew up in extreme poverty or who grew up in, like, some kind of, you know, it's, like, orphaned at a young age or something like that. Because, like, obviously those stories are tragic, but I can't relate because that's not my story. So this girl, she grew up in America. You know, she was smart, Asian, right? Her name was Nikki Toyama. Uh, she was preparing to go on a, basically, uh, well, I should say she was a mechanical engineer from Stanford. So she graduated from Stanford. She became a mechanical engineer. She was part of a team that helped develop a brand new medical device to treat heart disease. And she sold it to a company that wanted to take it to market and at this time in her life, she had been thinking about changing careers to become uh, in full-time ministry. Now, so she was moving from engineering to going to full-time ministry. Now, because she developed that thing, they were selling it, the patent. And she, as one of three engineers on a team, what she, her royalty, her personal royalty, was estimated between $1 and $3 million. And so she thought, this is awesome, right? Like God's, God's like hooking me up, right? He's going to give me this, this million-dollar royalty, and then I'm going to move to full-time ministry, and it's going to be all great, right? So she tells her work that that's what's going to happen, and they say no, right? Like if you leave the company now, then you won't get any of the royalty. And she says she like prayed about it, and she thought about it, and... She said, well, if I take the money, if I just wait a little bit and then I take the money, you know, I could, like, support missionaries. You know, I could start charities. I'm in a million dollars, right? At least a million dollars. But this is what she said, and I found it so interesting. She said, if I was honest, the only reason to stay would be to get the money. And that had another name, idolatry. Think about that for a second. She said, doing something just for the sake of that thing, right? Like, that's idolatry. And I had to think about it because I was like, is that right? And it is right. Because what we should do, which we should live for, is the glory of God. That's what all of our things should be about. But I felt incredibly convicted because I have said many times in my life that the only reason I do this job is for the money. Because I've, I've been bivocational at periods of my life. And so when I thought about being a pastor, I was a pastor for the glory of God. But I didn't work at a hagwon for the glory of God. 
right? I did it for the money. So all that I did there was not for God. It was for me. It was for money. Now, some might think her decision was foolish. But she shared about what happened. So she, she ends up going on missions. So she goes overseas and she goes to, she goes on something called a, a global, global, urban global trek. And she went to Cairo, Nairobi, and Bangkok. And in Cairo, she met Christians who had tattooed crosses on their wrists, you know, in a garbage village because if the cross was cut out, then that would essentially kill them. And so they were saying that they would rather die than deny Jesus. And she recalled that she was talking to some woman in Bangkok in a red light district and just having a normal conversation with her. But the woman was so thankful. And she said there she cried. She, she, she you know, fell to the ground. She's, we- she's weeping. And she said, would I care about this so much if I had a million dollars back home? Or would I be defensive about my life? And then she said something I think everyone needs to hear. She said, following Jesus is costly, but not following Jesus is far more costly. I felt entitled to whatever money I could make to fulfill my economic potential. But behind the illusion of entitlement lies an invitation from God. What does God owe me? Nothing. But he's given me everything in Jesus Christ. I, the reason this has stuck with me for like over 15 years is because I think that's what we struggle with. You know, this desire to fulfill, not a desire, this entitlement to fulfill some kind of potential that we have. Like I am entitled to fulfill my economic potential or my my artistic potential or my whatever ability that I have, what I'm entitled to is fulfill is to fulfill that. That's my mission in life, to find what makes me happy. But this view is not that. It's that God has given you a gift so that you could be a part of what he's doing in the world. And I think it's far more meaningful I think that a lot of the dissatisfaction that we feel from constantly trying to fulfill our potential in life apart from God is what makes us so dissatisfied. I I will close with this quote. This is from David Livingston. It says, people talk of the sacrifice. He's a missionary in Africa. So people talk of the sacrifice I have made and spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice, say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. And this is not a testament to David Livingston, or for that matter, the Apostle Paul, or really any disciple who's ever given anything for Jesus, it's a testament to this truth that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is the kind of treasure that is worth that kind of sacrifice. See, David Livingston's testimony isn't, look how sacrificial I was. Look what a good Christian I was because I sacrificed because I gave it all. Because sometimes that's where our brain wants to go. and We want to think, well, I want to be that kind of person who can give that kind of sacrifice. But that's not the point. When I look at this, I think, I want to know Jesus like that. 
I want to know the kind of reward that is in Jesus such that I will consider giving up something small, like a car, like a TV, like a house, you know, something like certain, having a certain style of living or to eat the foods that I want, like that I would consider that, the, the common conveniences of life, that I would consider that no sacrifice at all. Because in giving that up, I discover greater the joy of Jesus. That I could know him more. I could share in his sufferings. I could know his heart to go to the nations, to have compassion on people who don't have the gospel. That's what he invites us into. Not this kind of begrudging, oh, I have to give it up. Look what David Livingston did. You know, if he gave up all that, I should give up. No, that's not it. That's not it at all. God is begging us, saying, aren't you tired of an empty bag? Don't you want to be a part of something great, this great global work that I am doing? Don't you want to see people cross over from death to life? Don't you want to see people transformed by the power of the gospel? Don't you want to see people in heaven and have them come up to you and say, thank you? That is the great task that God invites us into, and that's what our church must be about. Let's pray together. I just want to offer up some time for us to pray on our own. Um, Just simply, if we could pray for conviction from the Holy Spirit and courage to follow through with our convictions. To really ask, you know, even as we ask ourselves, like, are we, whose name are we advancing and what are we living for? You know, what's in our bag? If you want Jesus to be what's occupying that space, just ask him to. He'll do it. Let's spend some time just praying for that.